Welcome to What We Believe, the podcast of the RCI program at St. Paul's. The RCIA program offers an overview of the Catholic faith in order to initiate students into the full life of the church. The following episodes are recorded live at St. Paul's Catholic Student Center. If you have questions or would like to join RCA, you can find more information on our website at uwcatholic.org. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you for the gift of who we are as men and women, the gift of sexuality, the gift that you have shown us that this is a path to love. We thank you for the goodness of the gift. Help us to understand it, know it, learn it, and live it in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Okay, great. Welcome back. Tonight, our topic is morality in general with a focus on Catholic sexual morality. So we're going to take what we learned last week about our framework for morality and to apply it to Catholic sexual teaching. This, I think, and as I, you can see in your handout, I love this handout, is where people largely disagree with the church. This is stuff that keeps people from becoming Catholic. This is stuff that gets people angry, right? Angry, right? Why? Because it touches to the core of who we are as human persons. Intimacy. It's this deep stuff. This is important stuff, right? And I'd said last week, the problem with sex is not that we think about sex too much. We think about sex too little. We don't actually Think about it. What is it? What's it for? How does it correspond to my life and my desire for happiness? Because that's the framework that we covered, and I asked you all last week who had heard this framework, that morality is proposed to you, or is proposed by the church as a path to happiness, and like three people out of a hundred raised their hand. Because we all have been taught it's just rules, just these rules, and it's not. There are things that, yes, we need to conform our lives to, but they're to lead us to happiness, okay? So morality is about happiness, that sense of human flourishing, well-being. You could say joy, right? Not fleeting pleasure, but true, genuine, lasting um, eudaimonia, well-being, human flourishing. That happiness is the end that you all seek every single day of your life. Every single person is hardwired, They want happiness as an end. It's not, I want to be happy so that I can get something else. No, I want to get something else because I want to be happy, okay? So this is the positive sense. So it's, morality is about how should I live so that I can live a good life, a happy life, a flourishing life, okay? And so we said that happiness is tied to choosing what is really good, In a sense, you could say it's a byproduct of choosing what is good. And we're going to really explore this question of what does it mean to do good, or what is it that we can even say something is good. And so tying into our human nature, there's something called natural law that at the core just says every single human person is hardwired on the principle, do good, avoid evil. Good is that which we should do, evil is that which we should avoid. Right? 
That's not controversial if we preach that message, right? We could all agree on campus, do good, avoid evil. Awesome. The problem is, when we start defining what is actually good, that's where we start to have a little bit of disagreement. Because as I pointed out last week, Adolf Hitler thought he was doing good. He operated under this principle. Was Adolf Hitler doing good? No, of course not. That's absolutely ludicrous. So there's something, I made the distinction last week, of real goods versus apparent goods. Real goods, something that's actually good for you, versus something I think is good for me but is not. And we have all experienced this. I'll give you an example. What is a real good? A real good is a scoop of chocolate shop ice cream, right? Anybody disagree with that? Yeah, we got issues if we, if we disagree with that, all right? A real good, it's good, right? Who doesn't love ice cream, right? And wouldn't that be a nice thing, right? If we all went down, we had one scoop of ice cream. That's a good thing, right? But at a certain point, if one is good, 12 is better, right? Or sometimes there is a point where a real good then turns into an apparent good. I eat too much, I drink too much, and then I feel terrible, right? I thought it was good, but then afterwards I regretted my decision. Anybody in their life said, I thought this was good, turns out it wasn't, right? Universal common experience. Real good versus apparent good, okay? That's a nice, helpful distinction to get in our minds. The second thing, I did not introduce this last week, higher goods versus lower goods, okay? So if I went out, and let's say we went out, and George, let's go get, see, you do get picked if you're in the front row. Um, we went out and got a, got a scoop of chocolate shop ice cream. That's good, right? That's a real good. And then next to it, all of a sudden, Will is outside, and someone comes up and just starts beating up Will, just starts punching him. And literally, Will is like helpless. And you and I are like, it's really interrupting our ice cream. <laughs> and I, we'll get to it later, right? That would be terrible. If I thought my eating ice cream was more important than helping someone that needed it, all of a sudden, a higher good versus a lesser good, okay? That's a very important concept, too, because so many times in life, we think a lesser good is going to fulfill us. But it doesn't. And in fact, we were made for a higher good, namely God himself, an infinite good, which is why the lesser good, even though they are good, can never fully make us infinitely happy. A temporal something can't make me infinitely happy. Okay, Higher goods and lesser goods. All right. But if we want to do what's good, we need freedom. I have to have the ability. And we talked about last week, freedom is an achievement. It's a skill. I have freedom is not just this choice. Y'all can do whatever you want, right? But, if, but that's not freedom in the fullest sense. It's not just choice. Freedom is a skill where I can do what is good or I could conform my life to what is actually true. This is true freedom, deep freedom, to be able to live in the way that I was made to live. And that's why we need virtue, because virtue is the path, the firm and habitual disposition to do what's good. So if I see what's good, and I know it's good, but I can't actually do it, I'm not free. If I know I shouldn't have 10 beers, 
and a night, but I don't have the capacity to stop after I've had three. I am not free. I need the virtue of temperance. And so, virtues are firm and habitual dispositions to do the good. And there are four natural virtues, human virtues that we all share, and that this is what it would mean to be a virtuous person, which would be to, as I, again, very broadly said, to think well, to choose what's good when it's hard, to choose or to limit myself when something that is good is no longer good for me, and to have good relationships. Prudence, fortitude, temperance, and justice. Prudence is a perfection of the intellect. Fortitude is a perfection of the will, to choose what's good when it's hard. Temperance is a perfection of the will, to have control when something actually isn't good for me. That tenth beer, that sixth cup of ice cream. And justice, to give another what is their due, right? To give another what is their due, in a sense to have good relationships, okay? And I mentioned how, again, we were taught a sort of rules-based, many of us were, were taught like the Ten Commandments, right? You must not do this. That's morality. And yet this virtue-based, happiness-based is not a thou shalt not. It is a positive command. And this is how our Lord speaks of morality. Happy are you when, right? Positive. There is such an idea in the church, it is pervasive, that if I just don't do this, then I'm holy. That's a bunch of crap. To be holy is to love, is to positively live. We are not the church of the holy no, that we are so good. Look at us, because we don't do this. No. We're called to be a church that's a light that shows us how to live, right? And so the Ten Commandments, these sort of thou shalt nots, are important, essential. They're the first revelation of who God is because they were given to an infant church, in my analogy, that is just learning who God is and children need rules and structure. So the example, everybody laughed at this, so if you didn't hear this last week, very good example. You're in the kitchen, you're cooking dinner, you've got a kid, a little Johnny, you're cooking dinner at the stove, and the stove turns nice and red, and Johnny comes up and is excited. He sees the little red stove, and is like, ooh, I want to touch that, starts putting his hand. You as a parent are going to say, don't do that. And you're going to say that because you love little Johnny. You could also say, Johnny, don't do that. Or sorry, you could also say, Johnny, if you touch that, it will frustrate your temporal happiness. But Johnny doesn't understand that. Johnny doesn't understand the positive. And so the Ten Commandments, which is where we're kind of at, generally speaking, like if that's my only understanding of morality, don't do, we have a sort of infant understanding, right? And so I even started this tonight. I thought it was good to see. We've been told the thou shalt nots, but have you ever been told the goods? What, that every commandment of the Ten Commandments is protecting a good. The first three are about the goods of God himself, his name, and Sabbath rest. Did you know that rest is good? Thou shalt honor God. Thou shalt honor God's name. Thou shalt rest on Sunday. The fourth commandment is the good of parents. It is good. Your parents are good. The fifth commandment is about the good of life. Life is a good. The sixth commandment is marriage and sexuality, which are good. The church upholds this. 
marriage and sex. Sex is good. It's created by God. He likes it. So we want to honor that. Private property. Thou shalt not steal. Property is good. Everyone ever told you that? It's good to own stuff. Right? You can go to an extreme, but I shouldn't take the stuff that other people own. Truth. Thou shalt not lie. Truth is a good. Right? And then, but the cool thing is about the Ten Commandments too as well, it's not just the thou shalt not. There's actually an internal aspect because Christ shows, yeah, it's not just enough not to touch that person that I shouldn't. I have to desire. I can't even commit adultery in my heart. Lust is not good. Right? Thou shalt love the other. And so marriage and sexuality, thou shalt not cover a neighbor's goods or a neighbor's wife. All right? So these are the goods. And you actually can see too, has anyone ever explained the Ten Commandments in terms of the virtues for you? Because all of these are about justice. Justice is to give another what they are due. What are you due because you're a human person? Life? We'll throw up the American flag. Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, right? You're due life. Life is a good. So to deprive someone of life is an affront to justice. It's a it's a sin against justice, right? What are we due to each other? The truth. We are due each other the truth. So to not give someone the truth, or we're also due private property. You can look at all of these Ten Commandments as things against justice, right? So it's a really interesting question. You ever ask someone, why is it wrong to steal? Why is it wrong to steal? Sometimes people steal and get ahead and they have no problem. Have you ever thought that? Why is it wrong? Because this is interesting enough, too, some people say, well, it's wrong to steal because God said so. That's true. In God's Bible, it says, thou shalt not steal. And I accept that. That is, my, that is an authority I accept. But what if I'm not Christian? Then it doesn't apply to me? No, it does. Because you're a human person who is made for happiness, who thus should desire justice to be a happy person. And therefore, to, not, to take someone else's private property is an affront to them and justice. So I can speak about all of these things in the natural law without even using the framework of God or the Bible. And actually, for those that don't accept those as an authority, all the more important that we do understand this from a natural law perspective. Okay? Same thing as when we get to sexual, sexual issues. Some people say, oh, this is just for you Catholics or you Christians, you follow this, but I don't need to. And what I hope to show you is that Catholic sexual morality is rooted in the virtues. It's rooted in what? Happiness. Everything the church proposes in a sexual teaching is for your happiness, for your flourishing. And it does fit in accordance with justice, what you're due. Right? But it takes temperance, the virtue of chastity, it's hard. It takes fortitude, right? To do the good is hard, right? And I need chastity and fortitude. And I got to think. I got to use my mind as it relates. So I have to, all the virtues fit together. Okay? So that's kind of where we're at, where we're going. The next thing I want to do, okay, actually, let me ask, just cover one more review from last week. Moral acts. I did ask you guys to memorize this. How do I determine if an action is good. There's three criteria. What are they? Come on. Object. Intention. 
circumstances, right? The thing that I'm doing, why I'm doing it, and the circumstances. Memorize this, please. And then apply it to your life. The example I gave last week was... Come on. Flirting. Right? That kind of fits. Is it good to flirt? It depends, because I have to look at what I'm, how I'm flirting, the intention, and the circumstances. If I am a single senior woman searching for a lifelong partner, and that other person is also single, is that a good act? Is it a moral act? Yes, it is. But if I change the intention, if I'm a single senior woman flirting with the intention of a one-night stand, is that a good moral act? No. No. If I am a single senior woman flirting with the intention of a lifelong commitment and the person I'm flirting with is already married. So there's examples where the intention and the circumstances change. This is our framework for assessing any moral object. Object, intention, circumstances. Please memorize that. Very important. Okay. But let's go even more fundamental because here's the question that we're going to start off with to framework our Catholic sexual ethics. The question's a very fundamental question is how do I know if something is good? That seems like a pretty easy answer, right? Is that good or is that not good? And yet, if we're talking about this, we disagree in a lot of areas, right? So how do I tell if something is good? Actually, I'm happy someone didn't sit up here because my favorite example, we're going to take this chair. And I want you guys to tell me Is this a good chair? Yes. Why? Go for it. Because the end of the chair is for someone to sit on. <laughs> Y'all have been through my thing already. All right. It is a good chair because you guys are saying because I have to know the purpose, the end, right? So that's, yep, you guys have done my routine before, all right? To know if something is good, I have to know something about the thing itself, right? So if I am going to say that this is a good chair, I have to know what a chair is and what its purpose is for, okay? So we have to know, and this is actually really important, so Catholic morality, which again is morality for all people, is about the idea that things have an innate nature. They have a causal nature. There's something that makes this a chair, because you all knew right away that this was a chair. And if I can understand that things have a nature, a causal nature to them, I can then tell you if they're good. And as we talk about this sort of thing, it's a little bit more than just the end, because, again, our friend Aristotle would talk about this, efficient, material, formal, and final. We're going to do a little philosophy here. 
So if I'm trying to know what something is, I can describe what it is based off of these four things. How did this chair come to be? What is this chair made of? What is the shape of the chair? And what is the purpose of the chair? Okay? So what it, where did this chair come from? We're going to call it the chair maker, right? The factory, right? How did this chair get here? Someone made it, right? Pretty simple. What is it made out of? Well, it's made out of metal and some cloth. So we'll write that metal and cloth. Formal. What's its shape? It's got four legs. It's got a back. Do chairs have to have four legs? Do they have to have a back? No. So there's a certain shape, a certain form to it. So we're just going to call this the shape. And then the final. What is this chair for? So really specific. What is this chair for? To sit where? At these tables, where? In our CIA at St. Paul's on the fifth floor. That's right. This chair was made with the purpose of you all sitting at these tables in Newman Hall, right? So it's to sit, but to sit with a purpose. I asked if this was a good chair, and you immediately said yes. What if this, is this a good chair for the bar at Whiskey's? Go to Whiskey Jack, would this be a good chair? Why wouldn't it be a good chair? It would be too short. And that's how you, that's why you guys jumped to this, but I can only tell if something is good if it fits the function, the purpose for which it was made. So yeah, this is a great chair for, because it was made for Newman Hall. But if this was made for a high top bar, it's not a good chair, right? Does that conceptually make sense? So, key fundamental piece. To know if something is good, I have to know its end, its function, and its purpose. Okay? To know if something is good, I have to know its end, its function, its purpose. But even more, let's see, this is our chair. Let's do a human person. What's the efficient cause of a human person? How did we get here? God. Sure, absolutely. In a sense, if I'm talking to someone who doesn't believe in God, we can talk about our parents as an efficient cause. They provided the genetic material, if you will, for who we are. But yeah, we're here because God wants us to be here. That's the efficient. So something of understanding us, we have to know we come from somewhere. What's most important about this is, did you make yourself? No, you're contingent on something. All right, what about the material? How would I describe a human? What's the material of a human? Water. Flesh. Flesh, a body. That's what you got on your hands, right, and your arms, right? If someone didn't have flesh, they wouldn't be a person, right? What's the form? Of the human person. Classically, the tradition would say the soul. Remember this from last semester. What's the human person? The perfect mix of body and soul. You can have all the flesh you want, but if there's not an animating life principle that gives you shape, form, right? All right, now here's the moneymaker. What's the function of a human being? What's the purpose 
of a human being. So that was the question that, well, even before Christ, Aristotle asked. What's the purpose of it? If I can understand the purpose, goodness is tied to a purpose and a function, what's the function of a human being? And what Aristotle says, essentially, is happiness. That the function of a human being is happiness in accord with a life of virtue. That this is the function, to live these virtues to achieve happiness. Okay? That's the end of the human person. Which I think is really cool because we can apply that same principle. We're kind of like Aristotle, I don't think, was wrong here. What's the purpose of your life? To be happy forever with God. What Aristotle didn't understand that Christians did is that our end is not temporal. It doesn't end with just human nature here. It's supernatural. It's to see God or what we call the beatific vision. The vision, literally that's the word the church uses, the beatific vision, the vision of happiness. Once I see God, you will be happy. You will be happy. That is what you were made for, okay? So now, with all that out of the way, this is the key thing. We got to know something's nature, what it is, and its purpose or function. What's it for? If we are going to assess if something is good. Okay? And you know what is really good, y'all? Sexuality is good. It is good. Don't ever let someone tell you that Christians believe sex is not good. Right? But we believe it has a nature. It has a function. It has a purpose. Okay? And that's what we want to cover. And so the other way we could put this is... What makes a sexual act good? That's a great question. What makes a sexual act good? Do you see how different of a question is that is um, versus the, the holy no? Look at all the stuff I can't do. Right? Think about this. How often is the question that people ask, how far can I go? Isn't that what people ask all the time? How far can I go? How far is too far, right? What are these things I can't do? And yet that question I think that is more better is what makes a sexual act good? What is the function or the purpose of sexuality? Okay? And here's the cool thing. Why the church says many of the things that go on on campus or people say are good are not actually good. Namely, they're not fulfilling their sexual function, their purpose, the essence of what sexuality is. For most things, the church doesn't say, you, you've gone too far. I'm going to give you another kind of change in mindset. 
You know what the church says? You haven't gone far enough. The problem is not that you've gone too far as it relates to sexuality. The problem is you haven't gone far enough. Because the function, the nature, the purpose of sexuality comes within a framework of a union of persons and an openness to procreation that can only be found in a lifelong commitment to marriage because you are that important and you are due that much love and respect that anything short of a total gift of self is not good because it doesn't go far enough and it's not fulfilling the function and the purpose. Just think about that for a second. The church says, if you're going to engage in sexual acts, give all of yourself. Hold nothing back. And it should be totally concerned with the other person. Do you think that's what people are experiencing on campus? This is what I want to give to you, everything. No. That's why in many ways, so much of what happens on campus is a lie. It's an injustice. Because I'm not being honest. I'm saying something with my body that's different than what my mind is actually, is actually at. Okay, so what is the function and the purpose of sexuality? We could say this in a number of different ways. The classic way it's understood is this. Procreation. There's two ends, two functions, two purposes. And then the union of persons. Easy way to remember this. It's a simplification, but it helps. Babies and bonding. This is the end of sex. I also kind of do this example like if you were, if aliens came and didn't know anything about the human race and they're like going to study, what is going on? What are these two people doing? What's the purpose of this, right? What happens when we do this? Why are they doing this, right? It comes down to unifying people. And the result of this action brings new life into the world, right? And so we can kind of look at just about everything as it relates to all the sort of hot-button sexual issues, right? Is that in some way, shape, or form, these are not fulfilling one of the ends. That something of what's going on over there doesn't fulfill the nature, the purpose, right? And I think it's important to know because I mentioned marriage, that sexual acts must and necessitate marriage because marriage, too, has its own nature. And one of the more confusing things is that we are just talking over each other in the public sphere because as we're talking about the context in the public sphere about what marriage is, we're working on two totally different definitions. For most people, marriage is just a public recognition of a committed relationship, okay? A public recognition of a committed relationship. But the church says, you can call something a public, public 
commitment of a, of a committed relationship. You can call that marriage, but that's not what marriage is. Because marriage itself has its own function, or has its own nature. And the church has a definition for marriage that I absolutely love. It's this. Marriage is the mutual partnership, mutual partnership, equality between persons, mutual partnership for the whole of life, for all of life, that by its nature is ordered to the procreation of children and the good of the spouses. That is the canon law definition of marriage from the Catholic Church. Mutual partnership for the whole of life that is ordered towards the procreation of children and the good of the spouses. You know, you could also say, you could shorten the definition. Mutual partnership for the whole of life that is sexual. You can't have a marriage if there's not sex. Did you know that? That if a man and a woman could not engage in the act of sex, they cannot get married. They can have a publicly committed relationship, but intrinsic to what marriage is, is sex. And what sex is by nature is ordered towards babies and bonding. It's the thing that's ordered towards babies and bonding, okay? But as we kind of talk about then, kind of, we'll go through a few of these lists and we'll kind of show you how and why these things don't fit the nature or the function. I want to go back to the virtues again because we want to framework all of this in the lens of happiness. And so what is required for me to live sexuality in accord with its nature, in accord with what it means to be a virtuous human, to find fulfillment, I have to have virtue. And the virtue that we need is called chastity. And it's a sub-virtue of temperance. Because is sex pleasurable? Come on, guys. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Y'all are quiet. You're thinking. Maybe that's good. Maybe it's not. Who knows? Um, <laughs> it's pleasurable. It's not hard. You put an attractive woman, an attractive man in a room, closed doors, in a bed, what do you think is going to happen? Right? It's not hard. But the question is, is it good for me? Is it good for her? Is it good for him? All right? And before I kind of go down this list, you may not believe this now, and that's okay. But the number of people in marriages now that I've talked to, middle-aged men and women, that are so unhappy in their marriages is not small. And they say, well, there's something with marriage. Something wrong with marriage. Maybe we shouldn't get married. It's his fault or her fault. And for so many, they just didn't use the thing in accord with the nature that it is intended to use. And now they're paying the consequences. The sexual revolution that promises, quote-unquote, free love and no consequences, that says that we can separate these two, is a disaster. And we see that. And unfortunately, many of our parents never taught us that. My mom today asked me to share. She's sharing a Bible study with a number of her friends, and she said, Every single one of them said, I didn't teach my kids this because I fell for the lie. I fell for the lie that I could get happiness 
apart from my human nature. And you can't. My sweet mother would always say you can not break a spiritual law, you can only demonstrate it. Just as I cannot break the law of gravity, I can only show that it works, it is so much truer in the spiritual life. I can try to find fulfillment apart from the nature of things, but you won't. And so these short-term decisions to sacrifice long-term commitment is going to hurt you. And maybe it has hurt many people in this room. And just to know that these are tough things to talk about, that healing is possible, and it's so good. Nothing is irredeemable, nothing is irreconcilable. But that if we do commit to this and proclaim this positive message, my goodness, you'll change the world. At the very least, you will change your family. And you'll have such better relationships. I don't do marriage counseling with people who want to have crappy marriages. They all think they're going to be great. But if I don't, but if I try to break the spiritual law, it's going to come back to bite me. And it does. And so that's why I just think overarching, we have to have that mindset. This will make me happier. This will require self-denial. It will be difficult but it will lead to flourishing. We have to believe this. Because in those moments of temptation, what else do you have? Can I trust? And that's the thing, we don't trust, okay? So all of these sort of things, most of what I listed up here, are in fact what we would call, and it explains very well in your packet, what we would call sins against chastity. Or there would be examples of where we're not using sex in accord with its nature for procreation or unity of persons. Some of these are not difficult to understand. Not hard to understand that rape is wrong, right? It is a violation of justice, right? The freedom that someone has. Certainly not uniting anybody, right? Prostitution. Certainly not good. Certainly not open to life. Uniting what? And notice this is very important. Union of persons, not a union of bodies. So many sexual acts are just a union of bodies. We're just fitting bodies together. But again, we want to give everything, body and soul. Head and heart and body, right? So prostitution clearly destroys this. Pornography. Pornography, certainly, the acts themselves that they're going to, whatever they're doing is not open to life. It doesn't lead to a union of persons in any way. It's a total distortion, right? Because, again, in so many of the other ways that all of these are against the nature of sex is that it's about me. It's about me, my pleasure. Whereas the nature of sex is about the other. It is what's good for the other Marriage is the mutual partnership for the whole of life that by its nature is ordered toward the good of the spouses, the good of the other, and procreation. Fornication, sex outside of marriage, right? It's saying, I give you everything, but I don't. I will give you my body, but I'm not committing to you. In a sense, I'm saying I'm using you for pleasure. It's about me right? 
it's tough to hear that, but that's true. The problem with fornication is not that you're giving too much, you're going too far, you're not going far enough. In a sense, I'm lying, it's a sin against justice, because I'm saying I give you everything, even the act of sex itself, right? We take off all our clothes, and I give you everything, right? So fornication, sex outside of marriage, doesn't do that. Masturbation as well. It's about my sexual pleasure at the expense of another. I start to misuse and degrade. Lust. Lust shows the positive command of marriage and sexuality and to fight against lust is important because Christ says, I don't just want perfection of action. I can want to transform your heart and soul. And this is where we really see how broken we are. Guaranteed no one in this room it doesn't suffer from lust in some way, shape, or form, right? And again, are we saying or is the church saying repress, don't have these feelings? No. The church is saying these feelings, these attractions that you experience are really, really good. But they have to be ordered. They have to be ordered to the good of the other. And if it's I'm just lusting after someone, that's not good for them. And it's not good for me. Contraception. Now we get to the fun ones. Is the church against birth control? Not exactly. The church is against artificial contraception. The word is very important. Contraception. Against conception. Right? That why contraception is wrong philosophically is because right here, it's not open to procreation. It takes an action that by its very nature produces life and says, nope, not this time. So in a sense, what you're also saying, even in marriage, this is very important. And unfortunately, only the Catholic Church teaches this. Up until 1930, every single Protestant denomination universally taught against contraception. In 1930, the Anglican Church because of social pressure, voted to allow it, and every other denomination except Catholicism fell. And there's great dissension in the church of people that want to change church teaching, but we can't change teaching rooted in human nature. We can't. I can't make sexuality something it's not. So we have no authority to change this, right? And so contraception says, I give you everything except my fertility which means I don't give you everything, right? And what it does is it starts, if it's in a committed relationship and in a marriage, it's this subtle crack. This subtle crack where sexuality is about you and not the other. And then you start to seek it for your own pleasure, not the good of the other. And it may be a year, it may be 10 years, it may be 20, 30, but that crack gets bigger. And all of a sudden... You don't know your spouse. You, have, you realize I haven't been loving my spouse, I've been using my spouse. I am so convinced that this is one of the reasons why so many married couples are so unhappy. Because one, one person, too, it, it stifles communication in a marriage relationship. Just one person is, quote-unquote, responsible for contraception. And there's not actually communication. We're not open to life. We're not using this in accord with the nature that it was created for. Right? Example that I've heard from many people later in marriage, they say, what happened was 
he was begging for sex, and I felt used. That's what happens. He had to beg, and I felt used. And imagine, men, if you didn't have to beg for sex. Imagine, women, if your husband cared so much about you that he attended to you, your desires, your pleasure, your satisfaction, and was only concerned about you as it related to sex. Doesn't sound that bad, right? <laughs> and if we use what's called natural family planning, you don't have to use natural family planning, but the science behind this is also so fascinating. Look up NFP, look up fertility, fertility awareness. Most, of, most people in our world have no clue how the female body works and that God has actually planted a way by which you can space births, that you can attend and communicate with your spouse of what is responsible parenthood. There's more in your packet on that if you want a little bit there. But man, if, whew, I, I just, I think contraception has wreaked havoc on our society in ways people don't want to admit. Same-sex attraction, homosexuality. This is probably the hot-button issue, probably of all, right? Why do church, why does the church hate gay people, right? Why does the church, the church does not hate gay people. The church loves every single human person. And you can look at the catechism written some 30 years ago, which was well ahead of its time, that said any unjust discrimination against people with same-sex attraction must be vehemently fought against. Okay? The church teaches that to have same-sex attraction is not sinful. But to act on it as to act on any single action of sexuality outside of its nature is not good for you. Or we could say is sinful. So same-sex actions are not open to procreation. It's not possible for them to be. Your reproductive system is the only system in your body that is incomplete and doesn't work unless another person links up with you. No other system in your body works. Or every other system in your body works perfectly. Reproductive system is the only one that needs another. Okay? So, honestly, I would say that why those who experience same-sex attraction or why this is such a big issue is because 70 years ago we said we don't have to have any connection between sex and life. And this is why the church doesn't, quote-unquote, pick on people that have same-sex attraction. The church says this is all not good for you. If there's an area in the church that I would love to help people see, it is married couples in the Catholic Church who are contracepting. Because philosophically, they're doing the exact same thing as those that experience same-sex attraction. Engaging in sexual acts for pleasure that aren't open to life. And why I believe the Catholic Catholic position is so beautiful and true is because it's, it's true, but it's compassionate. And this is where our framework is so important because there are Christians that say, that say um, homosexuality is wrong. It is an abomination because it says it in the Bible. It's true. The Bible does speak pretty clearly against homosexuality. But guess what? If my authority is not the Bible... Why am I going to listen to that? Why is this good news for all of humanity? Whether you believe in the Bible or not is because it's rooted in human nature. 
in what's actually going to make you happy. So what do people with same-sex attraction need? Just the same thing that everybody else needs. Relationship, friendship, intimacy. This is the other crazy thing the church promotes. You don't need sex to be happy. There is a lot of people in the world having sex that are miserable and unhappy. And there's a, a lot more in the world than you realize that aren't having sex that are very happy <laughs> and have been happy for centuries. Guys, I, I shouldn't say this, but I will. Guys, I say, like, you think I could never be celibate. Talk to a man in his 40s. <laughs> he's, he's like, you know, not that bad at looking back at it now. I think I could do it. Sex doesn't make you happy. What does? Intimacy, relationship. It's that lesser good versus the higher good. Only God can fill the void in your heart. All right? So those that experience same-sex attraction, those that identify as gay, they belong in our church. We need them. And we need them to be there for chastity. And I think actually, in a sense, celibate men and women can point out the way and say this is possible to live a fulfilling life, right? This is the beautiful, compassionate position. Sterilization is pretty clear. If I'm going to mutilate my body to not allow babies, I'm going to introduce some sort of disorder, right? And actually, I should say this too. What the catechism says is that same-sex attraction is disordered. That's the exact word it uses. You have to be very careful. It doesn't say people are bad. Because people are different than their desires. The desire is disordered. What does that word mean? It's not ordered towards the nature of the thing it's for. Same-sex actions are disordered because it's not ordered towards procreation. Does that make sense? It's disordered because it's not ordered towards procreation. In vitro fertilization... Children are a gift from God from a stable, loving community. They're not products that we can buy or should buy. And so if I separate the act of sex from the creation of life, I am also disordering something. And this child becomes my thing, my commodity. Right? This is very sad. And it is sad when people are childless. Those that experience childlessness, it's a huge, huge cross. My goodness, if you've talked with people that desire kids and can't have them, man, it is tough. But there are other options than creating children in a laboratory, right? There's a lot that I could be said there. Lastly, I'll say cohabitation. Um, this, is, this is a tough one, okay? Um, because it's very common. We know that, even in our community here, okay? And this could apply to people here in this room. So just hear this with compassion, and really know, I give this to you because I want you to be happy. That so many people, I think today it's just, well, I'm going to cohabitate because I'm going to save money, and that's a good thing. And I want to test this out, see if this is the right guy, if this is the right girl. But let's go back to the nature of marriage. Marriage is a permanent, lifelong thing. That's the nature of the thing. So how can I do a trial run? on something that's permanent. You can't. I cannot do a trial run on something that's permanent. Okay? I'm not using the thing in accordance with the nature. 
So then what happens? Then I expose myself to all sorts of um, opportunity to fall for things like fornication, to lust. It's also super fascinating when people live together, but they're not bonded, they're not committed, they can always walk out the door. Which means I'm not going to be totally honest with him or her, because what if what I do makes them leave and I don't want them to leave? Because our hearts desire permanence. It actually often induces anxiety because I can't be totally honest. The thing about marriage is, guess what? We're in it. And I can be who I am. And you get to see me at my absolute worst. And even in my absolute worst, I choose to love you. You see how valuable you are. How loved you are. That's the love your heart desires. That the church proposes for you. Right? Statistically, you're way more likely to be divorced. And you're statistically not going to experience marital joy. There's actually a common thing that people that cohabitate experience this sort of minor depression right when they get married because they expect things to change. But what's changing? God wants you to have a honeymoon. (laughs) He enjoys sex. He created it to be this beautiful thing for you. Okay? All right, so as we kind of wrap this up and kind of go into Q&A, there's a lot there, and it touches some, like, deep stuff, right? But if you live this chastity, I'll speak kind of to guys and then speak to the girls. Guys, if you honor women for all that they are, the beauty that they are, protect them in this justice in their dignity and say, I will wait for you. I will honor you and I will give you nothing less than all of me, as hard as it is. A woman responds very well to that, I believe. Ladies, you can tell me differently if you think, and that's okay. Would love to have disagreement. Ladies, if there is a guy that is willing to wait for you and say, yes, even though I would like to, I will sacrifice this, you know you can trust him in just about anything else, right? You really can. And if I do the hard work of chastity and live this out, because people say it's not possible. It's totally possible. To say it's not possible is to rob the cross of its power and to rob grace of its power. You can do this. You can live this, right? And so if this is something kind of hearing is you have to change in your life or kind of think maybe I do need to rethink, that's okay. That's what we're here for. Your mentors are here for you. We love you. We don't care what you've done. The church doesn't care what you've done. I, as a priest, in a certain weird sense, representing the church, want you to be happy. Want you to be healthy. Want you to have good relationships. It's possible. All moral teaching, at the end of the day, is about happiness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to What We Believe. If you have any questions or would like more information about becoming Catholic, do not hesitate to reach out, and you can find our contact information on uwcatholic.org.